Yes, friends, we'd love to have you come and be a part of that event Friday night. Uh, you can join us. That would be great. And also a reminder to families that we do have those Connected Families devotionals that are outside on the table in the commons, and you can pick those up for your family and make your way through that during the Advent season. Happy Thanksgiving weekend. Yes. How many of you are still full from Thursday? Absolutely. Uh, Thanksgiving weekend is about more than just turkey and mashed potatoes and food comas. I, I experienced all of those things. But as Christians, we recognize that this weekend is about more than that. That Thanksgiving weekend for us is a chance to remember that God has blessed us so greatly and that we have a daily attitude of gratitude towards him. And this is a one-time-a-year celebration when we remember our daily thanksgiving and gratitude towards God for all that he has done. Over the course of this weekend, as I was thinking about thanksgiving and gratitude, I was reminded of the fact that the amount of gratitude and joy that we experience in a gift is directly related to how much we value that gift. The amount of gratitude and joy we experience in a gift is directly related to how much we value that gift. I remember experiencing this in almost comical ways with my kids during Christmas when we would go to grandma and grandpa's house every year for Christmas, grandma and grandpa would buy my kids all kinds of different gifts along uh, across a wide spectrum of gifts. And so sometimes my son at age eight, nine, 10 would open a present from grandma and grandpa, all that anticipation. He would rip open the wrapping paper and he would pull out a six-pack of socks. Right? And what would he do in that situation? He would dutifully turn to grandma and grandpa and say, thank you for the socks. Because we'd lectured him for like a half an hour before we got there. You were to say thank you for every gift, no matter what comes out of that package. But there were other kinds of gifts. Right? Grandma and grandpa gave all kinds of gifts. And I remember one time him ripping into the paper and there within there was this authentic jersey of his favorite player from his favorite team. Frankly, a jersey that his parents had told him, we will never buy for you because of how much that costs. Grandma had bought it. And when he ripped into that, all of a sudden there was jumping around going on in the room. And thank you was flowing out of his mouth over and over and over again. And there was hugs for grandma and hugs for grandpa. There wasn't any forced or dutiful thank you. No, it was all quite natural, just exploding out of him. Because the amount of gratitude and joy that we experience in a gift is directly related to how much we value that gift. And today in our study of Romans... We come to the eternal gift that God has given to us that is so incredibly valuable that it brings joy and gratitude to our lives no matter what is going on in our circumstances. It fuels joy and gratitude in us each and every day, no matter what's going on. It's found in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. And so in our study, Romans Road, today we come to Romans 3. You can turn to that, verses 21 through 26. And we are going to see this great gift of God that has been given to us, and we experience it at the dawn of the book of Romans. 
Over the course of the first three chapters of the book of Romans, we have been walking through uh, the dark night of the book of Romans. And what do we experience if we're out walking at nighttime? When we're out at nighttime, we experience darkness, cold, confusion, anxiety in the dark. Every night there is this simulated death that takes place as people and animals all come to rest and stop their activity. But what takes place each day at the dawn? Each day at the dawn, there is this simulated resurrection that takes place as everything that has been still comes back to life and begins its activity again. When we're walking in the night, there's cold and dark and confusion. But when we transition to dawn, not only does everything come back to life, but there's light and warmth and clarity. And today is the dawn in the book of Romans. We have been walking in the dark. God has very intentionally had us going through Romans chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, and the dark night of sin and judgment and wrath. That's been our focus over the course of the last four weeks. We, we've looked at the dark night of our sin, that we are all on the path of sin. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have sinned. All have fallen short of God's glory. And we've looked at the dark night of God's judgment that comes for those on the path of disobedience and sin. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Every bit of it. Uh, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There is a day of judgment coming, Romans 2 says. And for those who are walking on the path of sin and disobedience, God will pour out wrath and fury upon sin. And so over the course of the first three chapters of the book of Romans, we have been walking through this dark night of sin and judgment and God's wrath towards sin. Today we come to the dawn. Today we come to the dawn as the blazing light of the good news of the gospel pierces the darkness in verses 21 through 26. And we see the beauty and the brightness of God's salvation. And quite fittingly on this Thanksgiving weekend, uh, we just celebrate and give thanks and are filled with gratitude this morning as we look at all of the different pictures that God's going to give us of the way that he has saved us. Paul's going to give us three pictures of our salvation here, three word pictures of the way that we have been saved. And he starts with a word picture of God's courtroom. That in God's courtroom, you have been declared righteous. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jews and Gentiles alike. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Justified by his grace as a gift. Follower of Jesus, in God's courtroom, the verdict that is rendered about your life is not guilty, it's innocent. 
there is no more condemnation for you if you are in Christ Jesus. Jesus' work on your behalf means that you're declared righteous in God's courtroom. This word for justified has the same root as the word for righteousness in verses 21 and 22. You're not only declared uh, not guilty, you're actually declared righteous. In our, in our court system, you can be declared guilty or not guilty. And if you're declared not guilty, that doesn't necessarily mean you didn't do it. It just means they couldn't prove you didn't, you didn't do it. Right? It just means that maybe you got off on a technicality. But in the Greco-Roman system, you could actually be declared totally innocent, be declared righteous. And, and this word for justified is a legal term used in Roman society to be declared totally innocent, to be declared righteous. And the question is, how is that possible? That a person as messy as me filled with as much sin and selfishness as my life has been, can be declared righteous in the courtroom of God. How is that possible? Well, it's not possible through my own works. Verse 21 says, it, the law didn't bring this about. It doesn't come through the law. It doesn't come through works of the law. As a matter of fact, verse 23 says, if I depend on my own works, that we are all guilty of sin and have fallen short of God's glory. So it can't come through my own works. So, so how is it possible that I can be declared righteous in God's courtroom? We're told in verse 24 that it is a gift of God's grace. It's a gift. Right? We're justified by his grace as a gift. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a gift. We've earned something, right? We have wages. What are wages? They're what you're due for what you've done. They've what you earned for what you have done. And so if I enter into a contract with Brad that I am going to work for him tomorrow for $10 an hour and I work for Brad for 10 hours at $10 an hour, how much does Brad owe me? What are my wages? Get rid of the taxes. I'm not good with math, okay? 100 bucks. Right, 10 hours, 10 bucks, right? That, that's what I've earned for what I have done. And this passage says, I have earnings because of my sin and my selfishness, and what I have rightfully earned is death, separation from God and all that is good. But for the follower of Jesus Christ, we don't get our earnings. Instead, in God's courtroom, we get a gift, a free gift that is totally different than our earnings. Right? Gifts are different than earnings. When uh, last month my wife had a birthday, I gave her a gift. It wasn't in any way based on her work output over the course of the previous year. I didn't sit down with a piece of paper and add up the number of hours she'd mowed the lawn, the number of hours she'd done dishes, the number of hours she'd painted the basement, multiply that by the number of compliments that she paid to her husband in order to determine her gift for the year. That's not how gifts work. I, I bought her a gift totally independent of anything she had done over the course of the year because I love her. It, it's a, a free gift. And we're told that our salvation isn't based in our earning it is based in the free gift that God has given to us. We are given 
an amazing free gift of God because God has decided to execute the most lopsided trade of all time to our benefit. Right? You, you think of lopsided trades. Right? Some of you are thinking of uh, Herschel Walker deals in your head or those kinds of things. Right? Think more lopsided than that. Uh, let's say that I was on my way in this morning and I was drinking coffee in the car and I spilled it all over my sweater. And because I have this strong urge to look like Mr. Rogers each and every day, I come to you, you're wearing a sweater, you've got a, a $35 sweater on, and I say, I, I, I need your sweater. I have $10 million in cash right here. Will you trade me this $10 million in, in cash for your sweater? How many people are going to turn that deal down? Right? That's just silliness, isn't it? That's too lopsided to be real. And yet that falls infinitely short, doesn't it, of the astounding trade that God has made in his graciousness on our behalf, where we are told that for our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel is that when Jesus was on the cross, he took the credit for my sin upon himself and all of the punishment that that sin deserved. And in return, I gained the righteousness of Christ credited to my account. What kind of crazy trade is that? Not one I've earned, but only one that God has given to me as a gracious gift. So that now in the courtroom of God, I'm declared righteous. Not because of any righteousness of my own, but because Jesus' righteousness has been credited to me. What, what a glorious picture of God's salvation in our lives. You've been justified, declared righteous in the courtroom of God. But it's not the only picture of God's salvation that we see here in Romans 3, 21 through 26. The next picture comes not from God's courtroom, but from sin's slave market. Sin's slave market, where, where we read, and are justified by his grace as a gift, we just looked at that, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus not only justifies us, declares us righteous in the courtroom of God, but he redeems us. He is our redeemer. What is a redeemer? What, what is a redeemer? When a redeemer in the Old Testament was someone who paid the price in order to free someone from slavery that they had entered into. And so let's say that the year is 450 BC, and I am a farmer, and there has been a drought in the land, and my crops have gone bad for several years in a row. I no longer have enough money to feed my family. I no longer have enough money to buy new seed in order to sow crops. And I absolutely don't have enough money to pay the 40% tax on all my land and all my goods that King Artaxerxes demands. And so what do I do in that situation? Well, I go to Kevin. And Kevin is a well-to-do landowner who lends money to me. 
so that now I can feed my family, I can buy seed in order to invest it in crops, and I can pay my taxes. But I take that money that Kevin has given to me, and I go to the chariot racetrack outside of town. And a couple of days at the chariot racetrack, and all that money that I have taken from him is gone. And so it comes time for me to pay that money back, and I don't have it. Uh, under the Jewish system, I now become a servant of Kevin in order to pay off that debt. Now, Rich sees me as a servant of Kevin and says, I don't want Matt separated from his family like this. Did he mess up? Absolutely. But I'm going to come in and I'm going to graciously offer Kevin the price that Matt owes in order to set him free from being a servant so that he can go back to his family. And that price that Rich pays to Kevin for my freedom, that's the redemption or ransom price. And Rich is now my redeemer in this situation. The Hebrew word is goel. It's what Boaz was to Ruth and Naomi. He's now my, my goel, my redeemer in this situation, who has set me free from that slavery by paying the price. Now, in the Roman world, this all worked in a similar way, only within every town there was a slave market. So that if I became a servant to Kevin through my indebtedness to him, he might actually bring me to the slave market where I could be sold and he could recoup that money that I owed him. In that situation, Rich would go to the slave market and he would pay the price for me and then declare me to be free, to be redeemed. He'd pay that, that price that was owed and then declare me to be free. And it is that, that freedom initiator, that bondage breaker that is in mind when Jesus is declared to be our redeemer. He is the one who sets us free from the slavery in our life. What kind of slavery did we have in our life? Romans chapter 6 is going to be very clear. It's a slavery to sin. Sin was our master, that we every day made decisions in selfishness, that we every day didn't live for our maker and love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We were enslaved to sin, and Jesus paid the ransom, the redemption price. What was that price? How much did it cost Jesus? Right? Yeah, Mark 10, 45 says, uh, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, right? To give his life as a ransom for many. That word ransom is the same Greek word as the word for redemption. He paid the redemption price, the ransom price for our sin so that we might be set free. And there are many people in this room who are here this morning in part to celebrate their freedom from sin that Christ has purchased. Right? Have you experienced that freedom? You have been set free from slavery to chemical addiction. doesn't mean it's not still tempting in your life, but there are many people in this room who have been set free from chemical addiction by the work of Jesus Christ. You've been set free from pride, 
No longer are you held captive to thinking of yourself first, elevating self in your actions. Instead, Christ has set you free to live for God and be humble. You've been set free from lusts. No longer are you living for food, pornography, comforts in order to make life worth living. Instead, you are living fully satisfied in Christ Jesus. You've been set free from pleasing people. No longer are your decisions dictated by what will make people happy, what will keep people from getting mad at me. Your decisions now are executed based on what brings glory to Jesus' name. You've been set free from the coveting of the American dream. No longer do you look around and say, if I only had what they had, if I only get what that next thing is, Instead, you have full satisfaction in Jesus. You've been set free from selfishness. No longer does life need to be lived for self. You've been set free to live for Jesus in all things. He set us free from slavery to sin. He paid the ransom price so that we would have the freedom to live for him and all that is good. That is the second picture that this passage gives us of God's amazing salvation in our life. The final picture comes from God's temple where Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. He was the substitute sacrifice for us, taking on the wrath of God in our place. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Our sins deserve punishment. And the picture here comes from the Day of Atonement, where the sins of Israel were ceremonially put upon a goat, a goat that was then killed and the blood was sprinkled over the mercy seat. This goat was a substitute for the people. The people's sins deserve punishment, but the goat took that punishment instead. This was just a picture of the Lamb of God who was to come, who would be that ultimate propitiation, that ultimate sacrifice that takes the punishment in place of someone else. And ultimately, Jesus came in order to be that propitiation. He, he took the punishment that we deserved, the wrath of God towards sin. That's what Jesus dreaded in the garden the night before he was crucified when we are told that he was deeply troubled in the garden. It wasn't about physical pain and torture that he was going to go through. Lots of people have stood with bravery in the midst of facing physical pain and torture. No, what caused great anguish for Jesus was the cup, the cup of the wrath of God talked about again and again in the Old Testament that was going to be poured out upon him for sin. That is why he says, if it is possible, Remove this cup from me. Because it was the wrath of God that was the dread of the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is this that makes God both just and justifier. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is just. Sin must be punished. Wrongdoing can't just be overlooked. 
Imagine what we would think of a judge who had a man come before him who had murdered multiple children. And the judge looked out at the families of those kids and said, guys, I don't know. I've had a pretty good day today. Let's just forget this ever happened. How would those families feel about that? What would happen to that judge? The judge would be removed because a judge's job is to do justice. And our God is perfectly just. Justice must be done for that wrongdoing. And the wrath of God will be poured out in order to punish sin. And the question from Genesis chapter 3 on is, how can God as a just God rightly punish sin and at the same time provide salvation from that punishment for people that he loves? And the answer to that question is a propitiation, a substitutionary sacrifice on behalf of those who deserve that punishment. And so the Trinity determined to take on that punishment within themselves that the Son would come and receive the punishment that must happen because of sin. And so now, every day we celebrate because we owed, but He paid. Right? You owed, but He paid. That's not the way the world usually works, is it? If you go out to lunch today, and I go out to lunch today, are they going to bring the ticket for my food to me or to you? I mean, I would hope they'd bring it to you, but they're probably going to bring it to me because that's the way the world works. I owe, I pay. If you decide to speed home today and get caught going 85 in a 55 and you get a ticket for $300 for that and decide not to pay it, is the notice that the county's going to send going to go to you or to me? It's going to go to you because that's the rule. You owe you pay. But in this particular situation, the judge determined to get down off of the bench and to take the punishment that we deserved. We owed, but he paid. He took the wrath that our sins deserved. Why? Why would anyone do that? We're told it's because he loves us. We're told that it's because God loves you, God loves me, that he was willing to go to the cross. That that even while we were in the midst of our sin, God loved us and determined to go to the cross on our behalf. Why Why would he do this? Why would he take on the wrath and punishment that we deserved? Because he loves you. 1 John chapter 4 verse 10, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son as a propitiation, as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. God took the pain and the punishment that we deserved so that we would what? So that we would be declared righteous in the courtroom of God. So that we would be set free from slavery to sin. And so that we might be declared clean because Jesus came and took the punishment that our uncleanliness deserved. Jesus has taken your wrath. Every time we come to the table, the Lord's Supper, we celebrate this, right? We we celebrate it, uh, what God has done on our behalf. 
We celebrate that, that Jesus has paid our price, that we've been declared righteous. We celebrate that we've been set free from sin, and we want to do that right now as we enter into a time of taking the Lord's Supper together. I would encourage you to spend a little bit of time with heads bowed, getting your hearts ready. And then you can make your way over to the tables around the outside and take the bread and take the cup and return. And after we've had an opportunity to worship God singing together, uh, I'll lead us in the taking of these elements. Let's worship our God together.